0: The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I am joined today by conductor Edwin Outwater. Welcome, Edwin. Thank you. It's really great to have you. You're spending a couple of weeks with us here at the Utah Symphony this summer as we record doing concerts at the Deer Valley Music Festival Four concerts that probably couldn't be much different from each other. That leads me to my first question I've had for you, because I know that conductors, if they want to be successful today, have to be very versatile creatures. And you, I think, have been willing, more than many of your colleagues, to think very creatively about the concert experience, which I respect. And I wonder if you could talk about your involvement with things like Soundbox in San Francisco and this thing, the lineup in Chicago, and how those projects kind of reflect your performance philosophy. I'm really interested in what happens in a
1: concert. I think one of the biggest obstacles for new audiences in classical music. is not classical music doesn't work. Right. It's that the interface is outdated, uh-huh. that people experience art and music in different ways. And in normal concerts, kind of a, a passivity from the audience, there's imposed rules, which they probably don't understand. And, um, and maybe don't like. <laughs> and they don't like, or <laughs> yeah. they just don't feel yeah. comfortable. Probably i found as my career has developed, I, I would say probably it's my life's mission, mm-hmm. ultimately to preserve the art form at its highest
0: quality while changing the interface. Yeah. You've become kind of known for this, and I don't mean that in a way that limits the other parts of your conducting life, but it is one of the, I think, central tenets of your profile. Definitely. Was and that, was I'm that... happy
1: with it. It just turned out that way. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, when you are a young conductor, they ask you to do all sorts of things. Sure. You kind of find where you belong. Yeah. The industry or the, the business, or I hate to call it that, the art form. Sure. Finds out sure. where you belong, and then hopefully it aligns. And yeah. so. I am often the person if if an organization wants to try something new, I'm, they call me, yeah. which is which is super cool because I
0: like it. Of course, and you're great at it, and you're you're doing more traditional work, of course, too. And yeah. another thing, conductors have to be obviously is mobile. You got to travel a lot; it's just part of the life. And as you do this more traditional sort of program work around the country. I mean, what are you noticing about the classical music business? Sorry to use that word again, but what are you noticing about our world as where you go? I mean, what gives you pause? What gives you hope? Um,
1: (laughs) People, I I think people are really reckoning with with you know transitioning from the industrial age to the information age. That that information and music travels in a different way. So everyone's trying to figure it out, which is exciting. Sure. um, With some few exceptions, I think the people who are most tradition bound are having the hardest time. Meaning the biggest orchestras and the most quote unquote famous orchestras. And I think there should be people who hold up the old traditions or preserve the old traditions for that audience who still likes it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm one of those people. Like Me too. I'm totally fine going to a Mahler 3 with no program notes, no talking, because right. I know the music backwards right. and forwards. Sure. But uh, I'm not my audience, so I have to think differently. But I think everyone's trying different things. I think... They're testing things. I think the audience is responding. So every city to which I travel, I think, has a different vibe, and you see different successes and mm. and misses, and you see cluelessness, and you see real brilliance. And so, that's part of a great benefit. Jet lag is a bad benefit, but <laughs> but like uh,
0: yeah. advantages, I'm seeing like what's going on almost everywhere. You probably see yeah. growth in some places and growing pains in other yeah, places. Exactly, you know, and it's it's probably. A little hard to watch, and sometimes the, yeah. to see a companies really struggle with but this.
1: But it's the way history works. It's, it's the way cultures change. Yeah. And you know, it's I have a very kind of Zen view. I think about cycles and the way societies change, and yeah. I look at it almost sociologically. And sure. So, and I know you have to fight for what you believe in, and right. I do. But I also think you have to know what's changing and how to how to ride the
0: wave. You know, you're reminding me right now. I watched this TED talk, this TEDx talk you did in 2011. And it was on this idea of classical music as rebel music. And the reason you called it that was because it so distinctly sets itself apart from kind of the way we world, the world works as we know it today, the speed and the delivery style and the acoustic nature and all that. So, I mean, I love this idea. And I wonder, has this notion developed for you in the seven years since you did that talk? I mean, do you still think of it that way? I do. I think you can find it on YouTube. It was a TEDx
1: talk I did in Canada. But right. the premise is, you know, everyone plays guitar now. Right, it's more rebellious to like pick up a bassoon, <laughs> and, <laughs> right, right? And uh, sometimes, actually, there's a whole movement of, of musicians who do house concerts, and so like you'd hear a bassoon quartet in a basement of someone's house, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I think that's that's interesting, right? Yeah. And so I think when I'm given unfettered, do what you want license, yeah, license, yeah. which often happens in San Francisco and sure. happened in my orchestra up in um, in Kitchener Waterloo, is, yeah. is it tends to be quite edgy, actually, yeah. what I do. Yeah. And I think that's kind of my. Unfettered imagination, but when it's a more traditional concert, I like putting subversive things in there, Mm -hmm. but not enough to get like a million complaint letters. So, of course. So, like, my goal is to, to wink at you know, the subversive side of what I'm doing yeah. and also have everyone have a good time, which is an age-old tradition. That's something that Mozart would have done. Yeah. And, like, so I, those are my idols, these these composers or artists who work in a popular style and that everyone loves them, but mm-hmm. they also
0: have another message sure. underneath. Sure, sure. I'm glad you mentioned Kitchener-Waterloo because I think it's important to sort of mention about you that you really do understand the balance that has to be struck between sort of limitless creativity and the need to keep these big unwieldy companies afloat you yeah. know you were a music director for 10 years there in Kitchener. so you know the responsibility a conductor has to make things work artistically but also financially in all those different ways you know without giving too much away do you do you think another md job is in your immediate future are you going to take a sure. pause i yeah. think i wouldn't mind not doing it for a while sure i think if
1: i'm really doing these projects and making a change all over the you know the world essentially or yeah. country yeah i'd be happy doing that yeah you know yeah. i think if the right orchestra comes around and I feel I can really affect change there and do the, the work I want to do, mm-hmm. which is not reckless, but just, you know, changing the culture, changing the experience of music yeah. for a new audience. If they're on board, then I would completely consider it. Yeah. If they're not on board, they're probably not going to hire me. Because right. that's what I, you know, when I go to these meetings, that's kind of, or interviews or processes, yeah. that's what I talk about. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just going to like hold my torch and then some orchestra will be
0: uh, bold enough to, to 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 sign on to it you're at the point in your career where that's why you're going to get the call I think yeah because exactly that's, yeah I want to drill down a little bit into one of the things you've done recently that I found really interesting because um, I've always really enjoyed explorations of how science intersects with music and you did this thing with Renee the sound health project yeah um, she was in town with us um, uh, at the beginning of last season and did a presentation. You mean Renee of this. Fleming, Renee the famous Fleming. soprano? Yes, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. I, <laughs> I just say Renee and expect everyone to know exactly <laughs> who I'm talking about. N- not Zellweger, ladies and gentlemen, Fleming. But uh. she did this thing with Dr. Francis Collin, which explores the links between music and wellness. And you conducted. An orchestral performance of that at the Kennedy Center. What was that like? And what did you learn during it was that? Was mind-bending. Yeah. You know,
1: I, uh, what has stayed with you? Renee from that found process? me because I had done something years before that right. with the uh, the Beethoven thing. Beethoven right? in your brain, yeah. which was uh, a project with Daniel Levitin, who uh-huh. wrote "This Is Your Brain on Music." Right. He's a neuroscientist and a brain doctor, basically, mm-hmm. and he loves music. So we did that program in Kitchener, and Renee kind of found both of us yeah. and put us on her cast of thousands, sure. you know, project at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. And what was really funny, this is like how my job works, is, is that I saw Deborah Rutter in Chicago before the show and who had knew my work when she was in Chicago, and she right. kind of pulled me aside and she said, uh, look, you are the only person who's going to be able to wrangle this thing because yeah. you're the only person yeah. who understands all the, yep. all the angles of it, like you've worked with scientists. So mm-hmm. um, I became the producer of the show you know, unofficially, yeah, sure. but you know all the emails started coming to through me, right. And uh, that was fun. It was incredible to kind of see how if you link something effectively like music and science, how much the audience learns about music itself when looking at it through another lens. message of Beethoven in your brain, the hidden message is, because there's always the message on top or the thing that draws the audience in, is that you don't have to understand classical music to respond to it or for your brain to figure it out. That in fact, your brain is figuring out the music, whether you are conscious of it or not. Right. And we kind of bring the audience through that, and then they end up feeling quite empowered uh, and uplifted like oh wait I actually do understand this and the th- things that make me feel I don't understand it are the things that society has put on us. Sure. You know, sure. Sounds kind of like society man. Well yeah it, <laughs> so it does my for brain is fine it's society <laughs> that's making my brain or the culture around classical music. And so yeah. by the end the audience, what's amazing about that show, which was both the one I did earlier and the one in the Kenny Center is how uplifted and empowered the audience feels and like yeah. I'm a part of this. This is my music. I get it. You know, I know why this is here. Like it, it, it justifies
0: it in a sense. Deborah was so right because this project is very much you. Because as we've been discussing for the last few minutes, this is what you do. You link music with other interesting things, not just other art forms, but science and sports, even. I mean, that's, yeah, that's you. You find those linkages and you present them in a way. And I love the idea that you're giving people new ways to sort of absorb and think and learn about music. And I'm sure that's the goal, right? Just a way in. Yeah, you know. Through something that they already know. Absolutely. And look, a music and science show or a
1: music and yoga show or a music and food show can be contrived and terrible. Right. So the idea itself right. is not a great thing. Um, but you're doing it somehow. Because a lot of people have these ideas, like, oh, let's combine music with this. Of and like, of and, it, and they're terrible at it. They so yeah. uh, it's really not about the idea. The yeah. idea is easy. The execution is what's hard. Absolutely. And you have to have a feel for it. But yeah um i think i have a feel for it
0: so that's no question that's yeah. no question this has been a great conversation and we could go on for another 30 minutes i'm sure but we always end with there's a sort of traditional question on this show because of the name the ghost light podcast and the name is the is because of of course the ghost light that exists in theaters and we always ask people who have long careers in theaters whether or not they've actually seen a ghost anywhere and if so to give us details so edwin have you ever seen a ghost wow I, I love, I'm, I love horror movies. Yeah. Like,
1: do you know the, like, I have like some friends who are classic musicians. I don't want to, to out them That's on this fine. podcast. Sure, but sure. We were like texting each other about what the best new horror movie is. Okay. So I'm, i I want to see ghosts. Yeah. I shouldn't say that. Wait, it's now okay. I will see a real ghost cause I just said it. Yeah. Anyway.
0: But you're open to it though. It sounds like,
1: well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an, it would be an interesting experience
0: yeah, for sure but you're not professing to, to know one way or the other right you exist. know
1: you walk into a room and you feel freaked out
0: yeah for sure
1: cincinnati music hall do you know about that place oh yeah that is like was like it's an old building yeah. gigantic yeah. and it was someone told me it was on the america's most haunted yeah uh show there's a lot of dead bodies literally yep. buried there um it's recently been majorly redone. restored so i'm sure so. when they it's like poltergeist. Where they pull up the Indian spirits. burial ground. I bet there are more ghosts now that it's newer than right. when it was older because they've, they've set them exactly. <laughs> so, but even before I was there before yeah. the redo, yeah. and that place was scary. Yeah, like because there, it's all these rooms are gigantic. and yeah. like and you're just by yourself. Yeah, in these rooms, going from one to another, and. I would suggest any ghost hunters to get there. There's right a reason away. why
0: there's a reason why they put these lights on stage at the end of the night, ladies and gentlemen, it's because walking from one side of the stage to the other in the dark is a huge leap of faith in most of oh, these yeah. theaters. And I would, I would
1: like, I also just so you know, I, you know, we are playing Ghostbusters.
0: I know tonight. Yeah, tonight as we record, we're doing so, a show about the '70s and '80s and sort of uh, the greatest hits from those eras, and Ghostbusters is on the yes. program. Yeah. Well, Edwin Outwater. It's great to have you here in town with us. I know you're going to be back, and I hope you'll come back on the podcast at some point in the future. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for being a guest today. All right. Cheers. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony, Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.